Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our August 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. In this report by Gunderson and colleagues, the authors use prospective 10-year follow-up data from the Collaborative Longitudinal Personality Disorder Studies to examine whether, and in what way, borderline personality disorder interacts with major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder. The authors found that both borderline personality disorder and major depressive disorder had reciprocally negative effects on delaying each other's time to remission and shortening each other's time to relapse. These interactions suggest overlap in psychopathology. The psychosocial interventions for borderline personality disorder should be the primary treatment for such patients. These interventions hasten time to remission in major depressive disorder. When major depressive disorder co-occurs with borderline personality disorder, it is not very responsive to medications and especially not to antidepressants. What is more surprising, given the overlap in phenomenology, is that this study found co-occurring borderline personality disorder and bipolar 1 or 2 disorder to have little effect on each other's course. This finding suggests the disorders are independent, a conclusion supported by prior family studies. Although psychiatrists often treat such patients with mood stabilizers alone, this study is a reminder that this therapeutic approach will have little effect on borderline personality disorder. Specific treatments are necessary. This research was supported by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health and is the result of work supported in part with resources from the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Providence, Rhode Island. Suicide is a major public health concern. Therefore, identifying people at risk is a major challenge for physicians. The emergency department is a critical point of treatment, contact for suicide attempts, and an optimal place for intervention. In this study, Bolton and colleagues evaluated whether certain features of suicide attempts help predict who might attempt suicide again in the future. Specifically, they looked at the suicide method used, such as overdose, as well as how patients felt about the attempt once they knew they would survive. Over 900 patients who presented with suicide attempts were assessed by psychiatrists and residents in two emergency departments in Manitoba, Canada. These patients were followed for six months after that attempt to see whether their reaction to survival or the method of their attempt could predict a future suicide attempt. The study concluded that ambivalence about survival or wishing to be dead were important predictors of future suicide attempts. However, the method of the attempt did not predict a future attempt within six months. The authors acknowledged that the study was limited as it did not examine completed suicide. 
They conclude that clinicians should consider assessing a person's reaction to suicide attempt survival as part of their suicide risk assessment for future suicidal behaviors. Preparation of this article was supported by research grants from the Manitoba Health Research Council, Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the University of Manitoba, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. A commonly held concept in cognitive behavioral therapy is that the act of smiling alone improves mood. Conversely, can the simple act of frowning make us feel bad? And if so, can preventing someone from frowning alleviate depression? In a study funded by the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, researchers investigated whether a single treatment of botulinum toxin A in the forehead could improve symptoms in patients with major depressive disorder. Botulinum toxin A is commonly used to relax the muscles that cause frowning. 30 patients were randomized to receive either placebo or botulinum toxin A injections. Midway through the study, at week 12, the treatments were switched. Patients who received botulinum toxin A had a statistically significant reduction in depressive symptoms as compared to placebo. Moreover, this improvement persisted over 24 weeks in those who received botulinum toxin A first, even though the cosmetic effects wore off at about 12 to 16 weeks. No adverse events were noted. According to the authors, the findings suggest that botulinum toxin A injection in the forehead may be a safe additional treatment for major depressive disorder and that its effects on mood may last longer than its cosmetic effects. Currently, little is known about the relative and preventive quality of resources found on the Internet when searching for suicide-related information using different search terms in different countries. The authors of this study used neutral terms such as suicide, method-related terms such as how to hang yourself, and help-related terms such as suicide help in the American and Austrian versions of the search engines Google and Bing. They assessed the preventive quality of the websites and compared the findings across the search terms and between the United States and Austria. This work was funded by the Austrian Science Fund and the Medical University of Vienna. The results showed that in both countries, websites generally provided more protective characteristics. For example, the address of a support service than harmful characteristics, such as detailed descriptions of suicide methods. However, the quality of websites retrieved depended largely on the search term used. Suicide method searches contained more harmful and less protective content characteristics, while the opposite pattern emerged for help-related queries. Furthermore, potentially harmful resources were better ranked and therefore easier to identify than websites with protective content. The authors conclude that the study has several implications for suicide prevention. Psychiatrists need to be particularly concerned about the quality of information retrieved by patients who report searches for suicide methods. 
Public health approaches are needed to improve the quality of information retrieved when these search terms are used. Implementation of prevention ads, which are already widely used for help-related search terms, could be extended to method-related terms. Improved meta-tagging of prevention websites by prevention organizations may further enhance the visibility of helpful resources, particularly when method-related searches are conducted. Depression treatment response rates continue to be low, posing significant challenges to clinicians. Moreover, response to treatment is also quite variable among patients. Identifying factors that predict good response would be helpful in making treatment decisions and could reduce morbidity and save valuable health care resources. In this month's continuing medical education offering, a group from the University of Arkansas with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health reports on factors that predicted depression response in an underserved rural population receiving collaborative care at federally qualified health centers. They looked at the association of potential predictors with four different categories of outcome. Remission, full response, partial response, and no response. According to the authors, the study findings suggest that federally qualified health centers can provide equivalent care to an underserved, uninsured rural population. The findings also suggest that baseline severity of depression and comorbid anxiety and poor health status negatively affect depression treatment response. Interestingly, certain non-modifiable factors such as gender were also shown to predict depression response in that women had higher response rates than men. Although the clinical relevance of this finding is uncertain, the authors recommend future research on the interaction of gender with depression outcomes. Although it is known that suicidal behavior clusters in families, little is understood about the way in which the risk is transmitted from parents to offspring. A recent longitudinal family study investigated the effects of insecure parent attachment on offspring suicidal behavior. Funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the study used data from 288 parents with unipolar or bipolar depression and their 488 offspring. This group was followed from 1992 to 2008 as part of a larger research project. The results suggest that an insecure, anxious, or avoidant attachment style in parents is associated with depression and impulsivity in their children. It is also associated with more severe suicidal behavior in offspring who make suicide attempts. The findings were significant even after adjusting for parental borderline personality disorder. This is the first prospective longitudinal family study to demonstrate how parental insecure attachment may affect offspring suicidal behavior. The authors write that further development of interventions to foster healthier attachment patterns may be worth testing in clinical trials to reduce the transmission of risk for depression and suicidal behavior within families.
Treatment-resistant depression that does not respond to standard medications such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors presents a therapeutic dilemma. Modulation of the opiate system may be a novel treatment approach for treatment-resistant depression. In a proof-of-concept, open-label clinical trial funded by the National Institutes of Health, Carp and colleagues investigated the use of low-dose buprenorphine for treatment-resistant depression. The average dose of buprenorphine was 0.4 mg per day. The average depression score decreased from 27 at baseline to 9.5 at week 8. Depression severity declined sharply during the first three weeks of exposure. Items measuring pessimism and sadness also improved during exposure, supporting a true antidepressant effect. Treatment emergent side effects, including nausea and constipation, were not sustained, and executive function and learning improved from pretreatment to post-treatment. About 45% of civilians who die by suicide have contact with a doctor within one month of death. Thus, educating primary care physicians to identify and treat depression is an important suicide prevention strategy. However, researchers have not examined the primary care consulting rate of military personnel before suicide. The authors of this article aim to investigate the use of primary care and mental health services by active-duty military personnel prior to death by suicide in comparison to matched military controls. The study used electronic medical records of 170 active-duty Israeli military male personnel who died by suicide. Data from these records were extracted and compared to 500 demographic and occupationally matched military controls. The results of the study show that whereas 38% of suicide cases contacted a primary care physician within the last month before death, only 27% of suicide cases contacted a mental health specialist during their entire service time. There was no difference in the contact rate with a doctor prior to death between the suicide and control groups. However, nonspecific diagnosis was more often recorded by the doctor among the suicide cases group. Consequently, the suicide cases group had less referral for additional tests and less sick leave. In their conclusion, the authors note that educating primary care physicians to screen patients for depression and suicide, especially those who present with somatic complaints culminating in a nonspecific diagnosis, seems to be a viable approach to suicide prevention in a military setting. Cognitive impairment frequently accompanies major depressive disorder, or MDD. Evidence indicates that impaired cognition persists even during full or partial remission of depressive symptoms. In this study, supported by funding from Shire Development, LLC, the authors examined the impact of pharmacotherapy on cognitive function in individuals with MDD. 
Searches of the PubMed and Embase databases were conducted to obtain English language reports of the effects of pharmacotherapy, either monotherapy or augmentation therapy, on cognitive impairment in individuals with MDD. A total of 43 publications were identified, including 31 describing monotherapy and 12 describing augmentation therapy. The majority of studies reported some benefit to cognitive function with antidepressant pharmacotherapy. However, there were no evident patterns of response in specific domains of cognitive function. Additionally, there was a substantial degree of variability in terms of the size, duration, populations assessed, and the neurocognitive assessment instruments employed across studies. Thus, these findings should be interpreted with caution. Pending more definitive research in this area, these findings suggest that pharmacotherapy may have therapeutic benefit in reducing cognitive impairment in individuals with MDD. Furthermore, augmentation therapy may address cognitive deficits that persist after monotherapy has brought about clinical response or remission of depressive symptoms. Among the serious mental illnesses, bipolar disorder produces higher levels of risk for suicide and criminality. Developing effective ways of identifying and modifying these risks is a clinical priority that has been hampered by limited understanding of their causes. To shed light on this topic, the authors of this article conducted a cohort study that examined risks of suicidality and criminality in over 15,000 people diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The study received support from Wellcome Trust, the Swedish Research Council, the Swedish Council for Working Life and Social Research, and the UK National Institute for Health Research. The authors found that over a fifth of patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder engaged in suicidal or criminal acts following disease onset. Compared with the general population, they had a markedly heightened risk for suicide and attempted suicide and smaller elevations in risk for violent and nonviolent crime. Among people experiencing suicidality outcomes, those with bipolar disorder were more likely to die by suicide than their general population counterparts. Among those who committed crimes, those with bipolar disorder were more likely to commit violent crimes. The authors conclude that assessing risks for multiple outcomes in bipolar disorder is important, particularly among those patients who have already harmed themselves or have committed crimes. Intervening early to treat substance misuse comorbidity also seems crucial and further research will be needed to determine the most effective treatments for these high-risk patients. Identification of biomarkers for a schizophrenia diagnosis may improve early detection and appropriate treatment. In this study, serum levels of eight proteins were evaluated to determine their diagnostic efficiency and predictive capability for the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Participants included 278 subjects with schizophrenia, 240 subjects with depression and bipolar disorders, 
and 260 healthy controls. Support for this study was received from the National Natural Science Foundation of China and the Science and Technology Department of Yonan, China. Significantly lower serum levels of three proteins, BDNF, MBP, and GFA, were found among patients with schizophrenia or depressive and bipolar disorders than in healthy controls. Serum concentrations of two proteins, IL-6 and S100-beta, were significantly higher in schizophrenia patients than in patients with depressive and bipolar disorders or in the control group. However, serum levels of three other proteins, beta-NGF, TNF-alpha, and IFN-gamma, did not differ significantly among the three groups. Further analysis showed that serum levels of beta-NGF BDNF, IL-6, S100-beta, MBP, and GFAP make the biggest contribution to the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Serum levels of these six proteins are promising as potential screening or diagnostic biomarkers for schizophrenia and may prove to be a useful adjunct for clinical assessment of this disease. Society's awareness of compulsive or problematic hoarding has increased in recent years. With the publication of the DSM-5, Hoarding disorder is now a recognized clinical syndrome. In the August installment of the ASCP Corner, Carol Matthews reviews the epidemiology of hoarding disorder, including its overlap with obsessive-compulsive disorder. The article also looks at current pharmacologic strategies as well as psychotherapy treatment options. When randomized controlled trials are not available, Hypotheses may be generated from observational studies. However, observational studies cannot establish cause and effect. This month's Practical Psychopharmacology column looks at associations that were identified in observational studies but were then refuted in randomized controlled trials. Dr. Andrade also discusses some associations that have yet to be confirmed or refuted, but that are nevertheless influential in psychopharmacologic practice. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the August issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.